Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We are going back to 1 Corinthians. Did you miss it? We took a break. We're going back to 1 Corinthians this morning. So uh, grab your Bibles, and we're going to head to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, and I just need to announce in advance here that the next series of messages taking us through February are going to be of more of an adult uh, content, like, uh, you know, rated PG, PG-13, um, because this morning, the next topic that, uh, you know, we're just going through the book, so God gets to decide what we're talking about, right? So the next topic to come up this morning is the topic of homosexuality. And next week, we're going to talk about sexual immorality. The week after that, intimacy and marriage. Following that comes topics like singleness and divorce and remarriage. So these are very practical topics, but they are of a more of a kind of an adult theme. So... Uh, use your own judgment as far as children, if you were kind of on the fence of whether or not you're going to have kids in here. Um, like I said, PG, PG-13, but definitely of more of an adult caliber. So use your own judgment. Um, let me ask you this. Is there a more divisive and emotionally charged issue in our country today than homosexuality? Uh, maybe one or two you can think of, but let's just say, wow, when you even hear the word uh, Who's more uncomfortable right now, you listening to a sermon on it or me preaching a sermon on it? I joked with Brandon throughout the week. I'm like, hey, you want your first crack at preaching this weekend? He's like, <laughs> like absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but we believe that if God has a voice on a matter, it's our job to honor that he has some things to say. And, um, you know, here, uh, Sunday morning, it's a lot more than words with friends. You know, it's a lot more than me kind of sharing some things with you. Uh, it's God's word. And we just want to be faithful to what he has to say about any topic that he brings up in the text. So this morning we'll talk about it. Um, it's important to observe just the facts. Our country is divided on the issue. The church in our country is divided on the issue. In fact, a Barna poll, or I'm sorry, a Gallup poll that uh, they do every year came out. There's a uh, chart that we're going to put up here. Um, and uh, this chart just shows the changing opinion of America uh, regarding to homosexuality. So um, it, is it morally acceptable? Is it morally wrong? Well, back to 01, you see the dark green line. 40% of people said it's morally acceptable. 53% of people said it's morally wrong. Fast forward to 2010, and 52% of people, according to this survey, say it's morally acceptable. 43% say it's morally wrong. Now, I'm just showing you that the country's divided. And it's a very, very political issue. It's a very religious issue. Uh, and voices on both sides in the extremes have not been courteous toward one another. Uh, in the church, it's a divisive issue. In fact, several denominations have formally came out and said we uh, not only support it, we endorse homosexual marriage, we'll perform the ceremonies. We can even have homosexual clergy uh, who are serving. Other denominations have formally denounced it and said absolutely not. Uh, we will not support it, we will not endorse it, and uh, we will not have uh, clergy practicing it. So, it is a very divisive issue. Now, my goal this morning is to speak humbly, and my goal is to speak with compassion. My goal is to speak with courage. In doing so, I'm hoping that I can model for us uh, what it means to handle a very hot-button issue with, uh, with an attitude of Christ. You need to know that I'm, I'm not totally um, just throwing grenades at those people out there. We're talking about uh, people whom God loves, we're talking about people whom Christ died for. And uh, we're talking about people who um, are dealing with something that's very real 
in their hearts and in their lives. In fact, all three of the elders besides me um, have an immediate or an extended family member who's involved in a homosexual relationship. And our elders go out of their way to show compassion and to share the truth with courage. So I hope you see that this is something that we are just taking as a very real, a very important, and a very relational topic. There's three individuals in particular that I'm going to be focusing on this morning. First, the person who knows the truth found in Scripture, but who struggles how to show grace on the matter. Second, the person who shows the grace of Christ, but struggles to define and share the truth on the issue. And third, the person who experiences same-sex attraction in their own heart, perhaps has for a long time, and is genuinely wondering what the Bible teaches on the matter. Let's pray, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Father in heaven, we've come here because we believe that you speak. We believe that you created the universe. We believe that you're the one who authored the user's manual. So as we look into the Bible, our prayer is just that you would Lord, help us humbly to come and sit at your feet and, and to just receive what your word says. And my prayer, Lord, is especially with this very emotionally charged issue, um, with this issue that is very real to several people in this room. It is not simply theoretical to them, it's life. Uh, my prayer is that you would show how practical your word is to an issue that is very relevant today. Speak through me, Lord. Pray that you would grace our congregation. As you move in our midst, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we are going. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, boy, it's been a while since we've been in this book. So just to catch you up, Paul's talking about how the church is treating each other. This church is messed up. Everybody say they were messed up. The church in Corinth, it was practically Vegas, only worse back then. So imagine writing a letter to the Christians in Vegas, that's pretty much what you're holding here. Okay, so we pick it up in uh, verse 9, and uh, the first question, you can jot this note down in your bulletin, the first question we're going to ask is, what does the Bible say? It's a very simple question, but it's one that doesn't often get asked. What simply does the Bible say? And reading in verse 9, it says this. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's talk about what the Bible, in fact, does say and focus in on it word by word. First it says here, do you not know that the unrighteous, uh, that word unrighteous, it's borrowed from the courts. It's a legal word. It just means unrighteous. It just means that there's been laws broken in God's courtroom. Uh, God has certain uh, legislation that he has passed. It's in keeping with his character. And one way to describe sin is just simply breaking God's law. And it says those who are guilty of breaking God's law if found guilty, and this is important, unrepentant, unrepentant, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the stakes are high. Uh, inherit the kingdom of God, it means heaven. It means heaven or hell. The kingdom of God is heaven. And we can experience the kingdom of God in this life in part, 
but the fullness of heaven is something we experience in the next life. So the kingdom of God is what's at stake. And it says here, do not be deceived. That word for deceived means to wander away or to be led away. Do not wander away. Do not be led away. From what? From the truth that's mentioned in this passage. Uh, Picture a person who's wandered off the trail. Uh, That's the image here, wandering off the trail. Uh, Lauren and I took the family recently to Starved Rock. We've got a picture of our family at Starved Rock. We're going to put that up there. How many of you have been to Starved Rock before? Mm -hmm. Beautiful place, right? I mean, wow, it's just, you could walk around there for days, and it's, but dangerous. Very dangerous, because you've got canyons like this one. And uh, there's us kind of looking at the top there, and you can hike all the way around. Um, But they have signs up, and the signs are everywhere. And here's a picture of one of the signs that uh, are up everywhere. Warning, stay back from the edge, footing is hazardous. Now go back to the canyon picture, put that one up there. I'll never forget this. We were in this canyon walking around and we looked up and there were three or four people who were at the top of that canyon going like this. And we were like, wow, how does, huh? And just then a ranger came up and he had a walkie-talkie in his little ranger outfit and he looked up there and he shouted at the top of his lungs, get back on the trail. And those people disappeared real fast. All right, and then, I'll never forget this, he looked at me and he said, I've picked up kids dead here. We've had kids get paralyzed here. Stay on the trail. And then he walked away. Now, the tone in his voice and the look on his face, that's what I kind of imagine the tone of Paul's voice being right here. That's the look on his face that I imagine as he says, do not be deceived. Do not wander off the trail of God's word. And there's a list of different uh, behaviors here, of different sins here. And one of the behaviors that's mentioned, one of the behaviors that Paul says do not be deceived on this issue is homosexuality. The phrasing in the ESV says, nor men who practice homosexuality. And there's a footnote there. Um, You may, if you have a different translation, you're looking at it, you're saying, wait a minute, my Bible says something different. Well, in the Greek, there was actually two words that are used here. And so the different translations do their best to bring the Greek into the English. That's why in the the NIV, it says, neither male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders. So they've chosen to translate both words uh, in a unique way. The New American Standard Bible says, neither effeminate nor homosexuals. So the ESV has just given one phrase. Other translations have tried to translate both words. Well, let's look at both of these words. The first one is malakos. Uh, The meaning of the first word in the Greek is simply soft. That's all it means, soft. It could refer to soft clothing. Uh, It just means soft. Now, obviously, there's something more than just soft that is Uh, condemned here in scripture so it has to at least mean a soft male meaning effeminate meaning more like soft in masculinity but but really is that what's condemnable is that what is worthy of speaking out and listing it on this list so it seems the context refers to the more feminine passive sexual partner in a same-sex relationship given that it's coupled with this next word the next word is arsenokoites so you've got uh, malakos, and you've got 
arsenicoites. Now, arsenicoites is a compound word, two words put together. And here's the two words, men, bed, men, bed. That's the word. It's just men, bed. Or if you put it into a plural uh, personal form, it's um, those who go to bed with men. That's what the word basically says. Um, And this would refer to the more perhaps dominant, perhaps active sexual partner in the same-sex relationship. Now, given the fact that the fullness of a homosexual relationship is described here with these two words, um, here's what we would conclude. What does the Bible say? Well, you can jot this down. The Bible says we must not be deceived because God's moral verdict is clear. God's moral verdict is clear. Now, every passage in the Bible dealing with homosexuality is being scrutinized, and sadly, many are seeking to revise what the verse actually says. So I actually have to defend uh, what I just said because there are many scholars who've written books that will know that they'll say, well, no, that's not what it says and that's not what these words mean. Okay, uh, malakos, they would say, actually means a male prostitute. The critics would say, claiming that it's really the prostitution that's the problem, not just the homosexual relationship. Um, they would say because in that day there was perhaps a younger boy who would be with an older boy, it's that the younger boy has given or sold himself to this that's the problem. This isn't like a mutual consensual homosexual relationship that we see today. Uh, They may also say it's the age difference or perhaps there was a consent issue, meaning this was more a condemnation of pedophilia. Here's the problem with that. The problem is the context simply says soft, which simply means sexually effeminate. Um, So you could force the camera to zoom in to this one particular setup, but the Bible simply doesn't do that. It leaves it more general than that, and so it, it's not appropriate to force the text to only apply to that scenario. That's pressing it too far. Okay, what about the second word? Well, critics say the second word, which is arsenokoites, um, wasn't even in use back then. Uh, there were other words for homosexual that Paul could have used, but he didn't choose to use those, so we don't know what he was talking about. Who knows? Uh, probably just some general sin among men. Uh, okay, the problem with that is check out Leviticus 20.13, which we're putting up on the screen. And Leviticus 20.13 says this, If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now notice, the uh, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there came a time when they translated it into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. This would be the Old Testament of Paul's day. If he picked up an Old Testament, this was perhaps the one he would read. Now, that phrase, with a male, uh, lies with a male, in Greek is arsenos koiten. Well, what does that sound like? Arsenokoites. So, Paul drew his language choice from the Greek version of the Old Testament. Uh, it's not a mystery where it comes from. It's clearly not a mystery what he was referring to. Uh, Paul was referring to uh, homosexuality. And both of these terms are general enough to simply refer to the homosexual relationship. So there are other objections. These are biblical objections, but there are other objections. Some might say today, well, what if they were born that way? Uh, What if God made them that way? Who are we to change them? Um, This is also a controversial matter in our country. How does homosexuality happen? Are you born that way or are you made that way later? In fact, there's another survey, another chart we're going to put up here. People were asked this question in the United States way back to 1977 when 14% of people said, well, you're born with it. 56% of people said, no, something happens to you in life or you just choose it. Um, Well, over time, look at where we are in in, uh, 2009, 2010. 
uh, to where there's 36% of people saying you're born with it, 37% of people saying it's your upbringing, your environment. I'm just showing you that we're a nation divided. Uh, the research is inconclusive. There is no one-size-fits-all. And if you talk to 100 different people uh, who would say that they are homosexual, they'd have 100 different stories of how and why they felt that they ended up that way. Okay? So let's turn to God's word, though. Is it truly God's design? Is it truly natural in the point that God implanted that in a person with a purpose? Well, check out Genesis 2, verses 24 to 25. We'll put it on the screen. This would be the, um, this would be the standard for human sexuality set forth that runs throughout Scripture. All forms of marriage and relationships are measured by this ideal that is held high throughout the entire Bible. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see here that God designed human sexuality. God bought up marriage. And his design and his intent was one man and one woman till death do we part. And all of human sexuality is designed to find its home in that relationship and that relationship alone. In fact, let's read God's commentary on the origin of homosexuality. It's found in Romans 1, 26 to 28. We'll put it up on the screen. It says this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. All right, so listen to these words. Dishonorable, contrary to nature, shameless, penalty, error, debased mind, ought not to be done. Um, now, there are some topics in Scripture where it is gray, and there are several good interpretations, but I'm just saying it's very clear this is not one of them. Uh, this is black and white, and the Lord has put in His Word a very clear, single moral verdict on homosexual behavior, and He calls it sin. He talks about the nature of it. He talks about the ideal that's supposed to be pursued, um, and simply put, it's sin. Okay, so that's the truth of the matter. Is that all that there is to it? Are we just supposed to be walking around with the truth of the matter and thumping people on the head with it? Well, that's the next question. Jot this down. How do, how do I relate to homosexuals? Write that down. When, when it becomes a very real thing in my life, when it's a person who I see every day, when it's a family member, um, how, how do I relate? And, and let me acknowledge that this is a major, major challenge it's a relational challenge because if someone in your life, um, they come out and they say that they are homosexual, if you're not ready with a relational plan and if they're not ready with a relational plan, it gets explosive and friendships are torn apart and families are torn apart and both parties are injured. Just take a breath for a second. I read a humorous story this week and um, I thought that it definitely illustrates what it could be like if we're not prepared to handle relationally um, <clears throat> this touchy issue. The uh, headline of this article read, Stray Cannonball Rips Through Suburban Neighborhood. 
A crew from the TV show Mythbusters was staging an experiment in the town of Dublin, California. They were trying to fire a cannonball into some large water containers at a bomb disposal range. Unfortunately, the Mythbusters crew seriously underestimated the dangerous power of a stray cannonball. According to a newspaper report, the cannonball missed the water, tore through a cinder block wall, skipped off the hillside, and flew 700 yards east. But that didn't end the damage. The cannonball bounced in front of a home on a quiet street, ripped through the front door, raced up the stairs, and blasted out a bedroom door. Leaving the house, leaving a perfectly round hole in the stucco, it crossed six lanes of traffic, took out tiles from the roof of another home, and finally slammed into a beige Toyota minivan on a driveway. A spokesman for the local sheriff's department said, crazy, 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 crazy. You wouldn't think it was possible. All right, now, here's the point. If there is someone in your life and and they've come out, uh, or if you have come out, (laughs) boy, it can feel like a cannonball just tore through not only your heart, but your entire family. And that's why we have to ask this question, how do we relate? Well, check out 1 Peter three fifteen to 16. On the screen, it says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Check this out. Being prepared to make a defense, there's the truth part, with gentleness and respect, There's the grace part. So jot these two words down. Two words, grace and truth. Grace and truth. And let me just talk to the truth people. You see, one of these comes better to us than the other. Maybe truth comes easier to you than grace. Maybe grace comes easier to you than truth. And let me talk to the truth people. Truth people, you're right. It is wrong. And your convictions are under attack. And there are many who would like to silence you or sideline you in the conversation. But if all you bring to the relationship, to the world, is a spirit of harsh or, or abusive tonality, if all you bring is truth, you're driving people away from the cross. Jesus was willing to speak with compassion and conviction to the woman at the well. And she was going on bachelor number six, living with him. And Jesus didn't hammer her over the head. And I think the problem is, instead of offering hope, you aren't really satisfied with God's judgment or simply stating God's voice on the matter, uh, which kind of seems like you want to be the judge. It seems like you want to be the one to punish the sins or expose or, or condemn others, which is not healthy and not Christ-like. And therefore, you must learn to speak and act more graciously and more lovingly. So here's what I would challenge you on. First, always show respect in words and actions. Always. Always. Next, never use another derogatory word again. And speaking to our high school and junior high students, hey, never use another derogatory word aimed at homosexual practice again, ever. Never. Don't ever let anyone know that you're a Christian and you use those words. It's a disgrace to the Lord. And you're chasing people away from the cross. Next, always be willing to converse with a loving tone. You set the temperature of the conversation. Finally, always stand ready to defend. You think I'm going to say the Bible. 
to defend anyone against verbal and physical abuse. When you see anyone getting picked on, you're the one who steps in between and says, hey, this is, a, this is someone who God loves. You stop. That will add grace to your truth. Let me talk for a moment, though, to the grace people now. Grace people, you're right. You're right. The church has struggled in showing love to those who are living in a homosexual relationship. You're right. But if all you bring to the relationship is loving acceptance and you withhold the truth of the matter, uh, you're chasing people away from the cross. Listen, Calvary is a bloody rock. Calvary is a bloody rock because sin offends God. And if all you bring is the grace of Christ and you only bring half of the truth, then you are leading people away from Calvary to your own rose-covered hill where you offer love but you don't clearly define sin nor do you acknowledge judgment. If you promise acceptance apart from atonement, if you claim that you can get them to the kingdom using only half the truth, you're a new Messiah. Well, how did you pull that off? Augustine said, if you, believe, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe but yourself. So let me challenge you, grace people. First, always be ready to risk sharing your convictions. Always. Next, always make Jesus feel loved first by how you love others. That's going to be a hard challenge. But if we bring, as Jesus came from the Father, full of grace, full of truth, then we will be exemplary in how we relate to those who are in the homosexual community or simply struggling with same-sex attraction. We have to be ready to know how to relate like Christ in these relationships. All right, third question. <clears throat> this is to the person who this is very real to. How do I deal with same-sex attraction? This is my life, you might say. This is real to me. And whether you've gone public or whether it's simply a private issue in your own heart, you are wondering, how do I deal with it? In telling their stories, many say that they knew from a very, very young age that their affections were directed toward their uh, own, own gender. Some say they dreaded the reality. Many homosexuals prayed that God would take the feelings away from them and fix or cure them. The fact is that so many in the homosexual community confess freely that they simply wanted to change but they don't know how, and they're afraid it's not possible. I'm not saying anything new. This is not opinion. This is a simple fact. Okay, so how do I deal with same-sex attraction? Well, check out verse 11. Verse 11 says this, And such were some of you. Do you see that word, were? Such were some of you. Paul, the Bible, is addressing the church in Corinth. Corinth. And do you realize what he just said? That entire list that he just went through. And there were some things on that list. We're only focusing in on this one because it's got a lot of gravity in our day, but sexually immoral, adulterers, drunkards, thieves, greedy. And, and he says, such were some of you. You were this, you were that, you were this. That means that there were some members from this ancient homosexual community who were now attending the first church of Corinth. Paul's like, that was your life. Such were some of you. Uh, they would be what you would call today living in a post-homosexual 
uh, way. They're putting that in their past. This gives us hope that it can be put in our past, but what does that even mean? Well, let's talk about what God does to change every human being at the moment of salvation. It says here, you can jot this down, you were washed. Write that down. You were washed. This describes our sins being washed off or washed away. It happens only at the cross and the guilt that you feel from your past, especially from sexual sins that have haunted you or sexual temptations you've battled, the guilt can be crippling. It can be crippling and it can leave you feeling powerless and, and perhaps broken or, or faulty or sinful. And here the Bible says that the blood of Christ washes away all sin. Now, I like that truth. I, you, can't, you can't erase one line item from your record. When your rap sheet gets pulled up in heaven, you don't have the whiteout. You can't even take away one teeny little sin, not even a white lie. But the blood of Christ can remove every transgression from your record. We have to understand that God is willing and able to wash us of all sin. Have you seen the Clorox ad, Life's Bleachable Moments? For Life's Bleachable Moments, check this out. They're having a contest. Share your bleachable moment for a chance to win $25,000. Wow. I would vouch to say that if we were to get up here and tell people about our pasts and our moral failures, every single person in the room has some award-winning, bleachable moments. What was I thinking? I can't believe I did that. And the grace of God is poured out so that we can be washed of all of our bleachable moments. Every moment is a bleachable moment when the blood of Christ is applied. Okay, what else changed? Check this out. You were sanctified. You were washed. You were sanctified. Write that down. The word sanctified means, and I love this word, to make holy. Sanctified means to set apart as pure and devoted to God. Ceremonially prepared to be placed in God's awesome presence and authorized to serve Him for the rest of your life. That's what the word sanctified means, and it happens in an instant when you're born again through faith in Christ. You are set apart as holy to the Lord. Third, you were justified. The word justified is a legal term. It means declared righteous in God's court of law. Fully forgiven, all charges and all sentences have been paid in full by Christ at the cross. You are free from bondage to walk in newness of life. Now, once these things are instantly true of you, then the Lord God goes to work in you. This is very important. Salvation is what happens to you to change your relationship with God in a moment. Sanctification is what happens to change your behavior throughout a lifetime. We can't confuse them. And I want you to understand if you are truly asking, what does change mean? If I have these feelings and I don't necessarily want them, and what does God have for me, and what, am I, what life is up the road for me? If you're truly asking those questions, what does that mean? Once these are true of you, then God goes to work in you. Which is why Colossians 3.10 says, We are all being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. Meaning, all of us have to be told by God what He made us to be. And all of us have to be conformed into His likeness over time through His power and His Spirit. Okay, so what, what doesn't change mean? Let me just give you this first. Change does not mean God cures you of all of your temptation. That's not what change means. Um, 
You see, you have to understand what sin is. Sin takes something very natural and very good and directs it toward an unrighteous end. So the point is, even if you find yourself experiencing same-sex attraction, you were designed to be a relational, sexual person. And listen, God will not cure you of being a sexual person. That's not what he does. That, he designed you to be a relational, sexual person who has healthy relations, biblical relationships with both genders. Um, God won't cure you from being a sexual being. You get that? And you have to understand that homosexuality is not a plague to be cured. Human sexuality is a fire to be contained. And, and every person has some sexual brokenness, which is why the man who's been married for several years suddenly has this attraction to some woman at work, and boy, is he on fire for her. And every human has to manage the fire of human sexuality, regardless of the temptation that you face. And so God planted within you, within all of us, the capacity for love, for pleasure, for intimacy, and you have to trust him to help you develop healthy relationships with both sexes and to direct the sexual passions that you have where he intends. All right, so what does change mean? What can I actually expect to experience by God's spirit? Well, these are the last four things I'll share with you. Um, first, you can experience a healthy biblical understanding of yourself and God's will for your life. So much of homosexuality comes from broken relationships and so many have said that they uh, feel like they've finally found themselves when they enter into this community. There's a lifelong search for who am I, and identity is the crisis. And I would say that you can find a healthy biblical understanding of yourself and God's will for your life. Either God will bless you with the gift of singleness like Jesus or Paul, and he'll teach you a special intimacy with him that others can't enjoy, or he will fill you with satisfaction in a heterosexual relationship that you never thought possible. Uh, the point is, the opposite of homosexuality isn't automatically heterosexuality. The opposite of homosexuality and all sexual sin is holy sexuality, meaning I am fully under the loving, leading, and guidance of the Lord, and I'm becoming who he designed me to be. I'm becoming the person God intended and wired me to become, but it's only possible through Christ. So that healthy biblical understanding of yourself. Next, a drastic decrease in frequency and intensity of homosexual temptations. Uh, I'm not promising you that all those feelings will go away forever. I don't think that happens because I think that those feelings are something that are very good, very natural, and they just sometimes are finding their way to very unbiblical ends. But there can be a drastic decrease in the frequency and the intensity of the temptations. Next, you can experience an extended season of victory over unbiblical lusts and behaviors. Everyone in the room needs hope that that's true. Um, whether you're a married guy with a woman or whatever, you're single, you need hope that you can experience an extended season of victory over unbiblical lusts and behaviors. And finally, what does change mean? What, what can I experience by God's Spirit? Well, I would say you can know the community of a loving church family who comes around you and offers acceptance and support even if they know the truth about you. That's my vision for this church. I think you would be amazed at the grace that you would find if you were to tell me or one of our elders 
one of our small group leaders, hey, that's very real to me, and it has been for a long time. And I think the fear that has been perhaps keeping you quiet um, is also keeping you from the loving community that you can experience here. Um, the elders and I are very determined to make this a loving, safe place. Um, and anybody is welcome to come through our doors to hear the truth about Christ. And if they want to be discipled according to his word, anybody. And our hope is that you would share in that vision with us and create this to be a friendly church, especially with people who this is very real to them and has been for a long time. I want to close by reading an excerpt from a Wheaton College student who found himself to experience same-sex attraction for a long time. His name's Wesley Hill. He wrote a book called Leaving All, Gaining All. It's by Zondervan if you want to check it out. Wesley Hill writes movingly about growing up in a Christian home, being taught biblical views on sexuality. And yet, he writes, confusingly, I found myself just when all my friends were beginning to notice girls and becoming interested in dating having longings to be in that kind of relationship with a member of my own sex. I found myself convinced, he writes, of the position which the church has held with almost total unanimity throughout the ages, that although many people find themselves through no fault of their own to have sexual desires for members of their own sex, this is a sign that we are broken and in need of redemption and recreation. He writes, if you're someone living with homosexual feelings, Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. But ultimately, Jesus is offering you the kingdom. He's offering you eternal life. He's offering you himself in the gospel. And sacrificing your sexual freedom may seem like a high price to pay, and it is a high price to pay. But he promises you a joy so stunningly great that if you felt the full weight of it now, you would literally come undone. Let's pray. Father, we commit these truths up to you, and uh, Lord, I hope that it shows in my voice that I'm speaking with tremendous humility. I'm simply trying to be a relay of what you have said to those who want to hear. Lord, my prayer for our church is that we would be full of grace and compassion, that we would be the ones leading the charge in high schools, in junior high, in the workplace to make sure that everyone is safe, to make sure that everyone is treated with dignity and respect. I pray that we would be the ones leading the charge on that. Lord, I also pray that people in our church would speak with courage and, Lord, would simply share with all those out there that there are several moral opinions on this matter and we believe that God's word is clear and that God has a moral verdict. Lord, as we share this truth, may we share it with tremendous humility and I pray that those who are curious, those who truly want to know what the Bible teaches, would have ears to hear, and that we would be able to have a voice and an influence in the lives of many who perhaps are interested in finding the way of God. Lord, our prayer is that you would form us to be a loving community, that we would treat each other with love and respect, and by our love that they would know we are followers of you. This is our prayer, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.